Hi, and welcome to Eminent Americans, a podcast about the contemporary American intellectual scene. I'm your host, Dan Oppenheimer, a self-anointed intellectual historian of the present. And my guests on the show today are writers Ross Barkin and John Pistelli, and they are here to help me launch something new on the podcast, which is a series of shorter episodes, at least in theory, that are dedicated to taking stock of the state of the intellectual discourse circa mid-spring, mid-early spring 2024. Now, what do I mean by that? And how does it differ from what I've been doing before? The answer I'm giving is that it's basically a process, an exploratory process, which involves reaching out to interesting people, some of whom are prior guests on the podcast, like John, and asking them to pick an idea, writer, cultural encounter text that they think has been significant in the past year or so, and we will go from there. So my only criteria was that I asked folks to try to avoid going too directly at the big culture war topics that seem to suck up so much energy in the discourse right now. Those topics are important. We'll probably touch on them today and in other episodes in this series, but I didn't want to start there. So John is the suggester of today's texts, one of which is by Ross. These are two connected essays that suggest that we may be entering if not necessarily a full-blown new age of romanticism, that at least a period in which certain romantic tendencies swirl and gust more forcefully than they have in a while. So one of these two essays, as I mentioned, is Ross's. It's a December 23 essay in The Guardian that was titled The Zeitgeist is Changing, A Strange Romantic Backlash to the Tech Era Limbs. The other essay, which I think, Ross, you referenced in your own essay, was a more fragmentary post on Substack from Ted Joya, the music critic and all-around man of letters. And his piece was titled Notes Toward a New Romanticism. And I would add to the mix some of the other writing that John and Ross have done on their Substacks. John's is Grand Hotel Abyss. Ross's Substack is called Political Currents. And, And maybe also just because I've been listening to these John's series of lectures, which he's been beaming out via his podcast on modern British literature. And for the last few weeks, he's been covering in particular the romantics of the 18th and 19th century. So that will sort of come into the mix as well. Some quick introductions before we get going. Ross Barkin is the author of three books, including the novel The Night Burns Bright. He's a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine, and his reporting and essays have appeared in many places. And he is also a teacher at the moment of journalism and writing at NYU. John Pistelli has written four novels, as well as assorted short fiction, poetry, and criticism published in various places of note. And his substack, which I mentioned before, is Grand Hotel Abyss, where he publishes a weekly newsletter on literature and culture. And also recently, in addition to his lecture series, has been serializing his latest novel, Major Arcana. So John and Ross, welcome to Eminent Americans. You are now both officially Eminent Americans by my decree. John is a repeat guest. You are doubly eminent now, but Ross, welcome to the club. Happy to be here. I'll send you a (laughs) t-shirt. So maybe I'll start with kind of before we get into the new romantic age. What were the characteristics of romanticism as we historically understand it. So that period, late 18th, early 19th century. Does one of you want to lay out for me just the basics of what we mean by that? Because we mean something that's in the vicinity of the sort of common sense understanding of the word, just sort of love and, and strong feeling for another person. But that's not precisely what we're talking about in this context. So I figured John, John's been doing wonderful lectures. All right, outside. John. I'm the kick. John, I'm the kick it to John as much okay. as I can say okay. he's right. he he should take right. in what we certainly mean by historical romanticism. John, sure. you take it, but you have to make it shorter than your lectures, which seem to be getting longer and longer every week. They're, yes, they are getting longer and longer every week. I'll see how quickly I can do it. So. Well, you mentioned the word, the word being associated with romantic love, but the actual term being applied to this era in culture in the late 18th uh, and early 19th century came from the idea of the Romance languages as against Latin in the Middle Ages. So it was a concern with, first of all, with reclaiming kind of local particular cultures that were sort of had been more robust in the Middle Ages and that had been kind of swamped by the internationalism of the Enlightenment. So that's one thing, a romantic concern with local cultures and languages. There was a turn, as I said, away from the ideals of the Enlightenment, whether that be the belief that nature 
was a kind of clockwork mechanism that scientists and philosophers could inspect and, and recover universal laws that would then inform society and politics. So the romantics tended to reject that and see nature instead as a kind of organic and ongoing and holistic set of processes that we could somehow engage with in ways that weren't rational. Another place the word comes from, romantic, comes from the idea of romance as a literary genre stemming from the Middle Ages, which meant a story of enchantment and enchanted adventure like the Tales of King Arthur, which is kind of a precursor to the novel. So a turn in culture, arts, literature toward the fantastical, the mystical, the occult, away from what had just been kind of born was the realist novel or some kind of heavily formal poetry and a turn toward more, you know, organic forms that look back toward the Middle Ages and things that were more enchanted. And then you see in, you know, I'm, I'm better on literature than the other arts, but in music, I think Ross mentioned and, and Ted Joya mentioned in their pieces, a greater concern with emotion, with passion, with the sublime, with grand emotions. And so, yeah, I think, I think nature, local cultures, uh, turn away from the Enlightenment, interest in enchantment, the mystical, the magical, probably sums it up for, for now. And Ross, do you want to, you know, in your essay in The Guardian, and you've written a little, some ancillary things as well, I think you, you cover those things, but a lot of your focus has to do with a reaction to not just the Enlightenment as a set of ideas, but sort of the Industrial Revolution, industrialism, technology, and so on. Is that, is that a fair characterization? Yes. And, and I, I think that's where the, the, some of the parallels come into play where, you know, you had, you know, in the late 1700s and, and 1800s, a real radical change in, in how life was being lived with the rise of these new machines, with the changing nature, even how people perceive time, you know, the, the introduction of these very, uh, aggressive forms of work and also people who are losing their jobs because of this new mechanization. And that's, of course, coming out of the Enlightenment, that this sort of very well-founded interest in in reason, but also this idea all of life, you know, in, in some sense can, can be reduced to some sort of equation or, you know, you can rationalize all of it. And so romanticism is certainly a reaction to that. And what we'll be talking about the, the current uh, mood and and that's where my piece came in and Ted's piece came in as well where perhaps not something as disruptive as the industrial revolution has happened now but you have the full takeover of the internet the continual evolution of digital life and, and a pretty broad feeling that None of this is really working well for most people. We're all into it and all addicted to it. No one's th throwing their smartphones into the sea necessarily. And, and kind of the, the anti-smartphone movement is still rather small. But there's, there's this broad recognition that the era of techno-optimism is very much over. And you find very few people as opposed to the 2000s, even 2010s, who are deeply optimistic about this, with the exception of being like the, the AI prophesizers. But even there, you sense there's pushback. And I thought I, my piece came out before the Apple Vision Pro, but the reaction to that was very interesting, where, as, as we all know, for decades, we've been inundated by Apple propaganda and, and this worship of the Apple product. And here was the latest innovation. And even Apple bros for like, well, what, what is this? This is making me dizzy. This is strange. So the, the interesting thing, we're in this kind of uncertain era where there is a feeling that just as in the romantic age, some of the, some of this technological progress wasn't exactly progress. There is this feeling of dissatisfaction of, of, of uncertainty of, of anger and excitement too. I think that these emotions can all run together so that that's where that's where you start to see some of the parallels so i, I want to spend most of the time talking about what you were just talking about 
Ross, which is where we are today and what we might be seeing and what it would mean for us to be seeing an upwelling of of romantic tendencies. But before we get to that, I, I kind of I realized I wanted to see if we could get some clarity on when we're talking about the romantic era of the late 18th and early 19th century. Are we talking primarily about a kind of period of of arts and culture? Are we also talking about how regular folks kind of experienced the world or how politics were inflected by these things? Because I, I think that's important because it's also then that goes to the question right now of what would it mean for there to be a new romantic era? Would that mean that would that mean movements of large movements of people who are responding in some regular folks in some interesting cultural or political way? Or is it primarily about the kinds of art and culture we're going to produce in the elite sectors where those are produced? So this is uh, this is a genuine question because I actually don't know the answer. Like sort of historically, how do we understand the Romantic Age as primarily sort of manifesting in the realms of art and culture? Or are there sort of deep political, historical phenomena that we trace to that as well? Well, can, can do you want me to answer? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> okay. I, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a. I'm not a historian. I was guessing we're all books people, so it's like, yeah, I don't, <laughs> right. we, may, we may be inadequate to uh, answer the question. But if either of you I, have I, an answer, well, I think it was a broad cultural mood because a lot of the, a lot of the cultural phenomena were genuinely popular. So if you're talking yeah. about the Gothic novel, or some of the changes in music or theater, those were, those were popular, and you know. So I think that's an index of a popular mood. And then the political context would have been the aftermath of the French Revolution, the rise of Napoleon, then the defeat of Napoleon, and the kind of re, what would you call it, the reaction, the reactionary, spread of reactionary governments in Europe following that. So, so the political current, to borrow Ross's <laughs> substack title, the political currents there were the, the kind of perceived failure of the Enlightenment culminating in the mass irrationality of the the French Revolution, then the rise of the, the, the emperor figure in Napoleon, who on one hand represents those enlightened ideals and even claims to represent them, but on the other hand is a throwback to a kind of Caesar-like figure. And then on the third hand, I don't know where the third hand comes from, <laughs> but he's a an arch-individual, you know, this up up from up by his bootstraps, so he represents the individual. So he's a very heterogeneous figure. And then by the end of the period, you have this political backlash and a return of the political right, and a turn by some of the leading romantic figures, like Wordsworth and Coleridge in England, from the political left where they began to the political right. So I don't know what to do with all that, but I, that's my answer. It, it's it's a, it's a really good question. I would agree with John that when we're talking about traditional romanticism. It, it it's somewhat all encompassing, certainly from from the from the arts, from Shelley to to, for, to to Byron to Blake to Beethoven, well both Shelleys, um, and and then to to the politics as well. So what are we? So so I mean, I, what are we exhausted with right now? What is the? We'll talk about what the reaction is and the reaction that we're 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 thinking about whether it's romantic in some meaningful sense. The reaction is against. You talked Ross about the sort of Apple Vision Pro smartphones, sort of the ascendance of Silicon Valley, and you know computing. It, it, is that the is that the major thing? Are there other things that that this reaction, if it exists, is a reaction against? I mean, I know there's a lot of discussion out there about sort of like the exhaustion of political liberalism. Ross, I think in your piece you talked about Anthony Fauci and the sort of reaction to the kind of scientism, the public health scientism of the COVID response. I don't know, John. Do you have other thoughts? Like, what are we what are we exhausted with? And is there something unique about our 2024 degree? of exhaustion relative to, you know, some prior period of exhaustion. Cause I don't feel like we've been in any great period of cultural vitality in any recent, in any recent decades. Well, one of the things that I don't, I don't know if it's in Ted Joy's piece on romanticism or I think it's in a more recent piece he did, but he and other writers, I think have talked a lot about in the arts, particularly the popular, popular culture, the kind of reboot culture, the IP 
culture. So every other movie is a sequel or is based on some pre-existing property or, you know, it's based on Marvel or it's based on Barbie. And, and perhaps, you know, one thing is some of the movies that were big this year and like Oppenheimer were, were original, at least, weren't based on this kind of pre-existing IP. So there's that. And I think in the, the, the more quote unquote elite realm of production, like in literature, I, you know, I, I've polemicized a bit against the auto fiction and the, the personal essay. And some of those are romantic. The romantic poets often like pioneered that sense of lyrically writing about your own life. But I'm more on the Mary Shelley side. Could you possibly make up a fun story again? Could we have some more invention and fantasy and, uh, and richness back in, in literature? So that's not all about your grim personal life all the time. Uh, so those are those are two things on the pop culture and the more whatever literary fiction level that I would name. I, I, Ross, what about yeah. you? Your 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 Substack is political currents. You know, where are we politically? Yeah. Well, I was going to add on the on the I'll, I'll do the political side. I was going to add on the cultural. Um, I, and I agree with John definitely with with re, retread IP. At least Barbie was new IP. But you see the the collapse, the the real time collapse of like the superhero genre as, as the Western collapsed. That the superhero, Madam Web, was an absolute bomb at the box office, <laughs> and I, I think the, the the superhero genre is 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 on its way out. I think in in literature on, on the elite side, novels that are overly didactic and politicized. You know that there are a lot of big bets on books in the COVID era. And most of them were not successful. And I think Big Five Publishing is trying to figure out where to go next because it, it turns out, you know, really boring books about elites are not always the most successful books or are, are not going to enliven that many readers beyond that cul-de-sac of, of people already who are buying books. But I would say on, on the politics side, you know, we're in the Biden-Trump rematch and and you do see a, a broad amount of disgust. It, it's almost perfect that we are discussing the uh, abundance of, of movies that are, are just trading off old IP and, you know, the, the superhero and everything else. And here we are with the, the oldest of, of IP, which is, you know, the same... <laughs> rematch we had four years ago and, and i think throughout the country one thing that unites most people people not those who fervently follow politics you know neither the the, the trump acolytes or the what i call the the blue liberals the the the, the former resistance crew the people who do politics 24 7 putting them aside, what unites most people, it's like, why the hell are these two really old men running again? Like, like what, what is going on here? We just did this. I don't get it. And you, what you're going to see certainly is falling turnout from 2020. You know, some of that was inevitable because the, the 2020 turnout was the highest in modern history. It, it was the highest turnout election since women could vote. You will not see that again. I, I, I will take that prediction uh, to the bank. But, you know, the voting you will see, and there probably will be decent turnout, at least historically speaking, is going to be against the other candidate. It's not going to be for yeah. necessarily anyone. It's going to be, oh, stop the horrible Joe Biden from another term or, or stop the old man or, you know, stop Trump. And, and so there is this broad exhaustion with politics, I would have said the era of hyper politics is over. And I, I say hyper politics is a, a term I saw used by a, a very good writer and a friend of mine, Ryan Zickgraf, to describe the Black Lives Matter protests and to describe you know, the resistance style movements and all these various popular upheavals of the late 2010s and early 2020s. That era would have ended, but for Israel Palestine, which is which has brought it back. So it, it, it is an interesting moment. And I, I did a piece on my Substack recently about this, where at least on the left, there's almost these two parallel tracks that are not at all in, they're not, they're parallels, they're not intersecting, but there isn't even much of a conversation. And in one track, it's the pro-Palestine, Joe Biden is aiding and abetting genocide. 
and the other side, which is that the New York Times is being too mean to Joe Biden and we have to stop Trump and save democracy. And this is a debate that's not in stasis. It's not like pro-choice versus anti-choice, pro-abortion versus anti-abortion. It's like these two sort of blocks of left pe left-leaning people who are just talking about completely different things. You cannot get kind of a resistant MSNBC liberal to talk too much about Israel. It, it doesn't fit into the matrix of stop criticizing Joe Biden. And right. the Palestine leftist will isn't even thinking about Joe Biden's age. They're thinking Joe Biden is aiding and abetting genocide. So what this has to do with the romantic backlash, that, that's a bigger question, one that I think is harder to answer, but that that, that is sort of the, the political dynamic that we have and that we are encountering as we speak and, and where that all goes, I, I don't necessarily know. So, I mean, let's try and identify evidence of the we, we don't have to believe it's happening or not, but but let's just, for the sake of argument, let's try and identify evidence of, you know, new romantic tendencies. Always hard to do in the moment, but but let's 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 see if we can do it and try and kind of tease out what we mean by that. So either of you can take that. Well, one of the things that um, that Ross wrote about in his article, and that my my novel that's currently being serialized on my Substack major arcana is about is the spread. And there's kind of an irony here because it's being spread through these digital technologies that you would think would be we would be having the backlash against. But the spread of what you'd broadly call magical thinking, particularly in like the craze for manifestation mm. or I don't know if you know these terms, the law yes. of attraction and the law of assumption, yes. these ideas that the the mind substantially creates your reality. And so your best thing to do is to kind of ignore, they literally say, ignore the 3D, that is the three-dimensional world, and just within to the fourth-dimensional world, and you will alter your reality. And as much as this sounds goofy and... and just like the, is it like The Secret? Is that one of the yeah. articulations of it? That's the big best-selling self-help book, right? Yeah. Yep, The Secret. Yeah, that came out in 2006 and had a vogue and then went down, and now it's kind of back in, in full force. But one of the interesting things about it is as much as you think it's this low-culture TikTok phenomenon, this is substantially what William Blake believed at the beginning of the Romantic era. And one of the main writers of the early 20th century that today's manifestation coaches, quote-unquote, draw on was a man named Neville Goddard, and he said, oh, I get everything from William Blake. And and Blake said things like, you know, if you believe a thing is true long enough, it becomes true. Mm. Uh, the world is substantially created by the human imagination. And there are strains of this in in Wordsworth and in Coleridge and in German romantic philosophy. So as much as we're getting a kind of popular, vulgar version of it today, it, it sort of comes from these these high culture canonical currents in its origin. So that, that I think would be one piece of evidence is the, just the spread of this language. I'm, I'm manifesting, I'm manifesting my, my Starbucks drink being cheaper today or something like, like you just hear this, like people say these things very casually. The, 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 I was, I was going to cite that as well, the new mysticism, you know, witch talk where, you know, people who embrace witchcraft are on, Wait, on, witch on talk, W-I-T-C-T. TCH talk, right? Yes, okay. yes, as in witches, yeah. witches and warlocks. The, de definitely the, the, the rise of manifestation and embrace of mysticism, occult, witchcraft. You've seen a real surge of this in the pandemic era, certainly. If, if you are on the internet enough and, and, and even just in, in everyday life, John was talking about manifesting. Manifesting is very big now and, and, and you, you hear... You hear about it a lot, and that that is definitely a new romantic tendency. I, I think what's very interesting is that in the 2000s, you had a real strong atheist movement, a, a, a loud, uh, combative atheist movement with, from Dawkins, from Hitchens, as you all know. And, and that is just gone. There, there is no pugilistic atheist in the culture right now telling you God is dead 
and you're an idiot for being a Christian. You have your trads, you know, your your, your people who've, you know, almost as, as opposed have embraced Catholicism. That it's, you see that in sort of the the Dime Square micro movement, which it also fits into the new Romanticism a bit. And then you have just the full on embrace of mysticism and the occult. And, and if you talk to young people today, they're certainly less traditionally religious than they used to be. You don't have as many people who are regular practicing Christians or you know practicing Jews unless they're Orthodox. But I would say anecdotally, at least, I, I encounter a few people who say proudly, like, I, I am an atheist. I embrace logic and reason. I embrace rationality. The idea of a unseen mystical force is silly. The idea of an unseen being controlling life is silly. That is all gone almost completely. And I think what's interesting is, you know, rather than it, rather than, rather than having a Christ, a Christianized pushback to that, you have this occult, this, this, this mysticism, the, the, the witches and the witchcraft and, and that. That very much is is a part of the the culture right now. To what extent do we think? I I always struggle around these things because I'm such a sort of boring rationalist in a sense, though though not a not a not a new atheist. Like I always think, surely a great deal of this is performative. To what extent do people believe it? To what extent do they believe in manifestation or tarot or astrology? Tarot's not. I say tarot and astrology or, have, have gotten bigger. That, that's that's a good. Yeah. craft to what extent do they believe in it to what extent and i'm not saying it's 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 performative in the most shallow sense it could be performative in a very profound sense and the profound sense could be that it, they see it as an expression of a kind of search for or an enactment of some kind of meaning without necessarily believing the kind of empirical truth claims of these things i'm not sure how you guys would answer that other than if you actually are yourselves believers in any of these things i mean i know john you're a christian of some sword so no. no i'm not you're not no. oh okay well you're something of some sort are you i uh, i thought uh, you were i, I don't know how i got that impression i wouldn't care i wouldn't i don't generally apply a label i okay. i generally leave labels to well you're to not a boring observer, rationalist but... like me there you have some you have some no. beliefs that that exceed the sort of purely material is that fair to say that's fair to say. And I'm going to, I will go, I will, I will go to bat for witch talk here. I will defend, I will defend some of this to you um, uh, because I'm not much of a rationalist. I think that to, because again, I, I had to like watch a lot of these videos to research my novel. So I sort of saw a lot of what goes on in these communities. And I noticed kind of a, some people would kind of have an arc of their journey which is that they would begin by believing very literally in the truth claim of I could manifest a billion dollars or I could manifest whatever, whatever thing that's probably not that plausible. But then what they gradually get into is the idea that really what they're doing is kind of improving their inner narrative so instead of dwelling constantly on the negative aspect of their life or how badly they feel, they're encouraged to speak more of gratitude, awareness of opportunities. What's the good thing that could happen to me? What are the opportunities that are here? And similarly with things like tarot and astrology, that becomes less of a strictly predictive mechanism and more like, well, here's an interesting symbol system and how can I interact with that? What can that tell me about my life? And so it becomes a kind of both an enchantment of everyday life akin to like living your life as a work of art, which is I think of as kind of a romantic ideal in certain respects. And then it also becomes, there's like a therapeutic element where you're improving the way in which you speak to yourself about your, your narrative. And that could be selfish sometimes. That could be like, you know, there's a lot of like, I'm the boss bitch. You got to tell yourself you're the boss bitch. I mean, this is the language that's used. I'm not making this up. But but insofar as it's about gratitude or openness, then it actually can be more other directed than self-directed. So I think it can be, for me, what I've seen is that it can be 
a serious spiritual discipline that helps people. That's what I've seen. I, uh, Ross, I, 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 go ahead. Can, let's just all put our. I'm yeah. gonna say uh, let's all put our cards on sure. the table, and I will in a second. And I, I've got a doozy actually from recent experience, but that makes me sound like less of a boring rationalist. But yeah, put your cards on the table. You know, where are you in all of yeah. these in, interacting? I, these I, things? For sure, I, I'm not. I'm not an atheist. I would say I have a lot of rational instincts and tendencies, but I'm also interested in the unseen. As a child, I was very interested in ufo stories and i, I had had a book and I, I read and research them and i don't think they've visited earth actually oh these are good these are good times for you yeah but i i, I that's don't another that's I, another phenomenon right yes and, and actually i don't think intelligent life has come here but i think it's somewhere it's not like it's gotten here yet but so i always had i always had an interest in the un unseen i was, ne I was never a mystic or or, or, or kind of Never drawn to that, but I'm definitely someone who has a healthy respect for religion, and you know I, I'm I'm Jewish. But I'm not practicing. I, I'm I'm not someone who, you know, it, it, I would say practices any of the any of the mis mystical side of things at all. But by th I think people are earnest about it. I, I'll echo John and say. It's not the sort of thing you do. Perhaps some, perhaps some online are doing it for cloud. I mean, with anything, you know, politics certainly people right, take sure. on. Right, People take on certain beliefs for for cloud. You know, for for Twitter. You know, for for retweets and, and all that. But I think generally, there, there's an earnestness behind it. I think what, what John described as the inner narrative is is, is true. And people right now are feeling alone they're feeling isolated they're they're feeling alienated you know we, we talked before about the the total dominance of the internet in in everyday life and we haven't talked a ton about it but certainly we've all engaged with it this idea that it has brought some people and some groups together but also has driven people further apart and and there are all sorts of studies about how young people hang out less today and are, are just engaging with their peers less so but like anything i mean it, it could also be there's an earnestness and it's also a way to belong to it's a way to find culture and and community and, and and you know for a time the way to do that was to go to a house of worship you know every saturday or every sunday now it's it's taking on different forms, which which is which is interesting. And as I said, it's also interesting to me that there is no atheistic backlash to it. And the culture once had many loud and proud atheists, and now I I can't I can't think of any certainly or those who who enjoyed the the platforms and the prestige that the, the new atheist did in the two thousands. It's interesting. I have a few thoughts. One, one is that the sort of vulgar Freudian reading of why people are talking about manifesting or astrology or Wicca or whatever is, is to what you were saying, Ross, is people feel alone and powerless and at, at the mercy of these vast impersonal forces, whether it's Facebook or our smartphones or, you know, the global economy or whatever it is. And so one response to that, and, I, and you could say it's a kind of immature response, is to imagine that you can will certain outcomes into existence, that you can exert control over your life through the application of some kind of magic that would, that would render you less powerless in the face of all of these things. But a different way of looking at it, and I think this is more the space that you guys were in, is, is to say that in thinking about how to construct meaning in one's life, that the sort of conventional rationalistic methods have just failed us. So there's a, there's a very sort of, in a way, rational appraisal of the ways that we've tried to make do in this economy, in this culture, and, and a conclusion that they're, they're coming up short. So we're going to engage with these other sort of non-rational systems of meaning because they might give us access to ways of living that work better, that simply just work better than then I, you know, I don't even know what to call it than like going to your job nine to five and earning a living and a pension and having kids and a white picket fence and maybe going to church or synagogue or something like that, the sort of conventional bourgeois life. Um, do you guys in your own lives, but then I guess thinking sort of about these broader phenomenon, are, are, are you 
Does that make sense to you? Which of those makes sense to you? The sort of immature narrative, wish, wishful thinking, or the sort of mature reckoning with the failures of kind of our existing modes of meaning for allowing us to get by in this, you know, in modernity? I, the latter for me. The, the, you know, I, I actually want to amend my answer about my, my religion because I want to borrow uh, Ross's formulation. Uh, I'm Catholic, but I don't practice <laughs> would, okay. would be the way to say it. But, uh, but certainly I was kind of my, my family tradition was what I call, I don't know if this is a sociological term, but it's like low church Catholicism. Mm. It was very mystical and pagan and sort of crypto worships the Virgin Mary and, uh, and things like that. And then there's a new age streak in my family. My, my late uncle was once the president of the Pittsburgh Astrological Society. So, so I, I have this, uh, I have these mystical strains in my background that I'm not myself that mystical. And it sounded, Dan, like you were going to tell us you had seen a ghost or something. No, like you, what so I was going to get back to that. Yeah. Now. Yeah. I'll tell you in a sec. I, I, I went out. <laughs> the, the, the preview is I just spent a weekend at a radical aliveness retreat, which is uh, would require some explanation, but it's it's body work. There's a lot of discussions of energy. There's a lot of the language is one that would align in lots in all sorts of ways with what we've been talking about and and I was it, the point of which was to sort of push me out of my head and the and the dysfunctions that ensue from me spending too much time in my head and not enough time in my body but you know we, to be continued if we get to that I didn't yeah. see a ghost though okay <laughs> yeah you, you said something I was like oh that sounds interesting but yeah I think that it, as a process of just making the world seem full of meaning as long as you keep in mind that all meanings are ultimately provisional and they aren't totally up to us to know. But if it does make you attentive to patterns, to to potentials, then I think as long as it's not magical thinking to the point where you're harming yourself or others, but it's magical thinking in the sense that you're seeing what the world could be, then I think it can actually be a meaningful way for, for people to interact with the world. I, I would say to to answer the question that I thought it was posed very well, there, you know, there there's certainly some of the former, but I would also say there's a rationality built into the irrational. So in my piece, I wrote about the reaction to the pandemic and to this brief period where you had the valorization of Dr. Fauci of science, trust the science as this 2020 mantra. And if you were paying attention, earnestly paying attention and following everything, you realize that the messaging around science didn't always make a lot of sense. And in fact, you yeah. were being retroactively gaslit and i don't want to go too far down the covid rabbit hole if we've all been there but the the, the just to, to bring up the the response you know the vaccines were great and they were made very quickly and they're wonderful the initial promise was they would end the pandemic the idea is that by early 2021 you get these this jab these two shots and, and the pandemic would cease this is how it was messaged and that did right. not happen and i think you saw the curdling of, of kind of trust the science and the rise of kind of culture war around the pandemic kind of started at that point, right? And you, you pair that with excitement around this technological breakthrough that doesn't quite deliver what it promised. It, it delivered a lot of good, it kept people from getting sick and dying, but the pandemic did not cease in April of 2021, in May of 2021, it, right. it continued, as we know, it continued. You know, we went through well, the twenty. 20- you had the sort of mystery. Yeah, we you had the the lab the lab leak, right? The obscuring of the the sort of the characterization right. of the lab leak as conspiratorial. Turns right. out it was totally plausible. You had that initial masks don't do any good, but really they knew they probably did good, but they wanted to preserve them for the you know right. We had we had sort of a succession of things presented as trust the science that we learned in retrospect were were politics. Yeah, science blended with politics in in and and we were deliberately being manipulated in ways I, I in ways it would have been totally obvious. I happened to be working in the field of public health at the time that if you know anything about the field of public health, like 
it's to- totally paternalistic and does that kind of shit all the time. But right. anyway, yeah, sorry, I interrupted. Oh, no, no, we're, no, we're, that was, that, that's definitely the, the mask points was true. Very conflicting messaging around that. But, but then, so if you take the pandemic, which is deeply destabilizing, terrible for everyone, and then you, you have the, the pandemic kind of catalyzes, metastasizes trends that were already happening, right? The, the technological incursion into everyday life, the, the rise of Zoom life, of Zoom school, of, of, of this, of the concept of digitizing everything. There's broad dissatisfaction over that, broad alienation, you know, school closures, obviously, which did not go very well. And then also, I, I think you have this feeling, which really is a, t- a 2020s feeling. This is where he gets the new romanticism that the, the technological progress, which was largely celebrated throughout the 20th century and seemed to always do on the balance more good than harm, that, that equation was no longer present. So if you look at every technological breakthrough of the 20th century, or, or late 19th, right, with electricity, the rise of the automobile, the rise of the airplane, telephone, cinema, talking cinema, ma- mass production of, of, of pretty books, of, of, of the mass market paperbacks. You, you pick a technological breakthrough, there, there, there's, there's always some downside. There always was some. The automobiles killed many people, right? But you have these breakthroughs and the senses overall, we're all going to benefit at least somewhat. There's a, a, a broad shared prosperity, right? And even on the art, on the artistic side, technological breakthroughs aren't necessarily undercutting art. The, 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 the book is not necessarily threatened by the rise of television. It is, but we also know there's a very robust era of, of kind of, 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 of mass literary writing of, of, of the writer well, being it, exalted is a new art form, right? Yes. Itself is a new art form as film is. Yes. As, yeah. Yes. So, right. So, right. so you have, right. All these technological revolutions are happening, but again, there's a, there's a sense of harmony. And I think the rise of the internet too, if you think of early internet, right, probably more, more good than harm. Now we see mass collapse of media of, of traditional newspapers, mainstream media, social media, the rise of social media. Exciting initially, Facebook's exciting. I was in college when, when Facebook was blooming and everyone had a Facebook page and it was, oh my God, got to get on Facebook. Twitter, Twitter created the Arab Spring, right guys? And, and, and what wonderful things Twitter was going to do for the world. And, and so all of that has just curdled so much. And that's the moment we find ourselves in where we're sitting here in 2024 and, and not just us, but I think ordinary people who, who don't think that hard about all this stuff are sitting here like, well, wait a second. Apple's new innovation now is like this strange headset that makes me dizzy. Social media is like driving me crazy. If you're a parent, your kids are just absolutely addicted to this stuff. They're getting cyberbullied nonstop. And we all remember bullying in high school. But the thing with bullying is you could go home or you had it in the cafeteria or on the football field and then, then, you, then you left and lived your life, right? It's, it's, all, it's all kind of gone to shit for lack of a better lack of a better word. So, and, so and here we are, me, right? I, and here we are. So, so how do you react us, to that? <laughs> yeah, let me return us to the new romanticism. And I think what we haven't talked about, we've talked about these sort of mass cultural phenomenon or, you know, maybe Ross, you'd call them microcultural phenomenon or something like this. But these mass phenomena of astrology and, and witch talk and tarot and manifestation, what I don't think we've talked about at all is Ironically, because when we think of the Romantic era, who we think of are artists, high culture folks, or, or, or maybe in retrospect, high culture, but at the time, at least they were sort of, they were proper culture. Can we point to anybody? Can we point to anything in the cultural sphere, the sort of artistic sphere that seems like a manifestation of a new romanticism rather than a sort of exhaustion of whatever the, the, the previous regime was? I mean, is it your novel? John, is it, is it, is it Substack? Is it like, I, I don't, cause it's, I don't think it's witch talk, I guess. I don't think we're going to look back in retrospect and discover that there was some, tr- some genius producing 45 second videos on TikTok, who is the artist of our, of our age. I, I think probably it will be in the spaces we're familiar with already. 
and it's somebody we if in fact this comes comes to to be it's somebody we know of but maybe we're not aware at the moment that they represent that that's only clear in retrospect or something like that i'll 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 try to answer that in a more broad way i mean i'm trying to you know i'm trying with my novel dan i'm I'm doing the best i can but but i i don't know that i could name other names but i thought what you said about substack was interesting or what we're doing now in terms of a podcast because one of the cliches about romanticism is that it was anti-technology and i think that that was maybe truer in maybe germany i think i'm not a germanist but what you often find the English romantics saying, even Blake, but also Percy Shelley and Wordsworth, is things like, we're not against these new technologies, but the problem is they've just been created by, by these scientists, and it really takes art to bring these things into the imagination, into the human community. Shelley says we need to imagine what we know. And that this is one of the roles the arts can have. And I think that what we're starting to see with with things like Substack and podcasts is, is to me, it does actually hark back to those early days of the internet, like the late 90s, early 2000s, where you had the blogosphere. And it actually did feel, I mean, I was, I'm old enough, so I was there. It felt kind of utopian. It felt yeah. like a new yep. republic of letters. And then it was social media that really collapsed that. And social media feel- plus... All the all the great so many of the great bloggers got poached by mainstream well, yeah. institutions, right? <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Right. So I think that what we might see is this increasing attempt not to just turn away from the online world entirely, because there's I think I wrote in one of my responses to, to Ross's piece that there's there's not really a lot to go back to in terms of a lot of print culture has just been destroyed. Right. Um so we're, we're okay, right, go we're back right. to the Middle Ages, right? <laughs> To the, right. to the troubadours. Yeah. Right. So I think what I see on Substack and podcasts to, to be more optimistic is in it this attempt to let's humanize or rehumanize this online world with more independent writing that's not tied to this algorithmic stoking of aggression and desire and, and all the irrationalism that, that the bad, the bad kind of irrationalism that seems to come in the in the twenty tens. I, I mostly agree. I would say as, as someone who still like likes print is that at least on the boutique side, there still is an embrace of print, not for the newspaper, not for like things that are transitory, but you know, you have County Highway, which started up and has had some success doing a print only newspaper like a month, that's, six that's times. That's the one from, from who, from, 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 from Dave, uh, David Samuels Walter, Walter and Walter Kern. Kern. Yep. yep. Sam- so, so, and yep. they've, they've yep. amassed, you know, something like 10,000 subscribers. You know, the, the Drifts, the new literary ma- magazine, I mean, they're mostly a print journal. Jacobin still keeps a pretty strong print journal, even N plus one. Um, I think John is generally right. Yes, the, the, the print culture, the, the big print culture has been eviscerated, but there are shoots of kind of a, an interesting new, smaller print culture that I think you can point to. I agree, certainly on Substacks and podcasts, and since you know, we're all on Substack, and I'm optimistic about Substack. Substack can't solve the problems of the news media, and I think they never claim to, but there's this idea around the various Substack panics. Oh, it could never be the, 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 the small town American newspaper again, and that's true. I mean, no, nothing can, but there definitely is a return to the 2000s style blogging, but this time with a healthier infrastructure behind it, which is, you know, the, yeah. the collection of emails, the ability to monetize, which didn't really exist with the blogs. Daniel and I had a, had a little exchange about the, the poaching phenomenon, which was very big in the 2000s, where once you got successful in a blog, you were poached out. And I think you're seeing less of that now because Substack it, itself, one, the very successful Substackers make too much money to be poached, but even those who make a lot less there's a certain now power and prestige to Substack. And what I'm interested in on the art side is, you know, Substack is self-publishing, right? And, and what's strange is that there's always this stigma around self-publishing fiction, but nonfiction, there isn't any, right? You tell someone you run a Substack, people go, oh, that's pretty cool. Whereas, you know, the, the, well, there isn't the, the, there isn't now, right? I mean, yeah, there um, was. 
Yeah, and I think, I, I think that's changing. That. I think the blogs broke that. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's changing. And I think fiction, too. John, John serializing put, his wanna, novel, too, which is something push more you guys. people will do. I want to I push you guys because on this – but but on what – What's specifically romantic about what you're describing? I mean, you're describing so, small kind of a, a restructuring of the sort of networks of dissemination, but that surely is not enough. That doesn't clear the bar, the the, the bar to for something to be romantic. I'd love to believe. I'd like to end this on the conclusions that the three of us are the new romantics and the you know avatars of the new romantic age by virtue of our embrace of Substack and podcasting and and John serializing his novels. And I, I can see that as a constituent of it, but I'm, 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 I'm running up against like, but are literally the things that we say, that we're saying and the beliefs that we're propagating partake in romanticism in some meaningful sense. I'll, I'll jump in because I have an idea and I definitely want to hear um, what, what John has to say on that. Um, I, I would say, in some sense, Substack is the ultimate embrace of the individual over the institution. You know, that is, a, it's a romantic concept. I, I do think the idea of, of one person being the, being the, the focus, you know, it's not a new idea at all, but I do think if you think of like the 20th century, you know, large media organ, the idea that you subsumed yourself to the institution. That is true with places like the New York Times, but because so many institutions have collapsed now into that void are many individuals who are, for lack of a better word, shopping their own brands and, 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 and selling their wares, you know, selling their art. That seems to be a romantic notion, even the way, you know, art being produced. And I don't know if, if one can can put self-publishing in, in the romantic bucket. But you, you, if you think of the way publishing used to happen in the 19th century and, and late 18th century, it was the subscription model. It, it was, you know, later on Walt Whitman selling his own poetry. The, the idea of like a conglomerate sort of rubber stamping your artistic product is really more of, of a, you know, post-industrial revolution idea. Whereas if you look at, you know, art, even into the 20th century, you know, this is not romantic anymore, but like Virginia Woolf and her husband, you know, publishing her, her, her fiction under a imprint they created just to do that. So it, it's, is it perfectly romantic? I don't, I don't know about that, but I, I, I am interested in, in where this is all headed. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think that there was a particularly on the artistic side, a lot of romanticism was about challenging the what had been the, the literary or cultural establishment of its day. So you do, do see experiments in, in self-publishing, like with, with the work of William Blake, or, I mean, a lot of the, the early works of the romantics were sort of what we would call like small press published, right. like, yeah. you know, in the, sort of like little liberal or radical circles that would just form and London and they would publish different things. So, so yeah, I think it looked at the infrastructure level actually a lot like what we're doing now, you know, for its time, which again is making like a, making a, a use of the technology available rather than rejecting it. And then as far as the content goes, I guess that that remains to be seen. I mean, I've been thinking more about your question about, you know, I, I feel like I should name some names or something, but if you look at even people who in the last like decade have published novels, like literary novels that were widely talked about, like one name that comes to mind is Otessa Moshveg. Mm -hmm. And she says, I talk to God, like I dictate my novels. She says things like that. Um, another name would be Tao Lin. And Tao Lin is, I've rejected medical authority. I've cured my autism with this diet that I found, and I believe that we need to return to a matriarchal goddess-centered religion. So, and those are two people that have, you know, big book deals. So, yeah. so I do think we see even, even, you know, not on Substack, I think we can see signs of some emerging de-secularization de of the literary culture. Do you think, I mean, we're all three on Substack and, and what the hell, let's just navel gaze about Substack um, because 
as John said, I mean, I was around when the early blogosphere, and I was around and paying attention, not doing anything, but reading and noticing when the early blogosphere emerged. And it felt like that was where the action was. And in fact, that was where the action was in that specific realm. And we've all, we're all downstream of that. So I feel like that now on Substack, right? I, that, that's where the, this is where the action is. This is where the interesting shit is happening in kind of criticism and intellectual uh, journalism, essay writing. Is there a vibe when you're, when you're scrolling down the notes feed or you're getting the, you know, getting whoever you subscribe to in, in Substack, uh, are, is there a characteristic vibe or energy? I mean, I think the ones that I've noticed that people have commented on is there's a very up with people is not the right way to right way to put it, but it's like, it's like small town writing group vibe. Like, Oh, this is so wonderful. Like what you're doing is so wonderful. Like this passage from so-and-so is so brilliant. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of craft discussion of how to do writing. Um, I think Justin Smith Rue just kind of invade against that recently. Uh, there's a lot of navel to me is a very lot of I'd say he's a very romantic. Justin Smith to me is a very romantic. I enjoy him a lot. Like like he he would fit that. Yeah, mode, maybe yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I mean, so that's the question. I mean, let's 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 do that characteristic Substack thing yeah. of navel gazing about the nature of Substack and what it is that's happening on this platform and what do we see emerging as particular tendencies. Yeah, yeah. So so I would say some of it is definitely the stuff Justin invades against, and and I I have a kinder view toward. I I'm fine with small town writer group feel i'm fine with craft talk i think there's a lot of earnestness to the notes feature and i think if if that can feel schmaltzy it trumps the alternative which is what right. twitter was and what twitter in many ways remains you know on one hand it's hard to generalize because there's just so many different sub stacks and so many people doing different things but i i subscribe to a lot of them i pay for a lot of them I can't even, I, I found, I think I found John's. I think Alex Perez recommended John's to me and that's how I became a subscriber. And I'm trying to remember how I found Emden Americans. Like you can't even remember anymore. Maybe it was notes. Maybe it was just yeah. like linked somewhere and you find something you're like, oh, this is pretty good. I, I think my, my sense with Substack is someone who like operates in the mainstream media and, and has, has a contract with the, with the mainstream media outlet and, and write, writes for them and, and, and follows the, the regular news. There's always this feeling that Substack is like where the real writing happens. There's not like a good, precise way to say that other than it feels like, you know, here, here's the media, here's like your, your conventional kind of box or whatever in this bucket over here. And that's good and interesting. And that serves a real purpose. But Substack is like where I get, it almost feels like what is actually happening right now? What, what is kind of the, the blood below the skin? Like every time I, I kind of open it up, it, I think because there is no editorial infrastructure, it is people literally writing without an editor, unless you're mad at Glacius, you know, paying your wife to do it. There's this unvarnished sense. And, it, and I think in that unvarnished sense, you are, you're experiencing conversations, experiencing debates, seeing things that you just aren't seeing elsewhere. And that's very exciting. That's probably the thing that excites me yeah. most about Substack is, yes, there are bad Substack. Yes, notes can get tiring. Yes, the Substack Nazi thing, like, was so repetitive. But just, just like, day-to-day, week-to-week, you're, you're getting stuff. You know, even John's piece, not, not to nail a gaze, but his weekly roundups. You're, you're getting things that I'm not going to read anywhere else. And, and some of that is just the yeah. collapse of the media and, and alternative media dying. And we would have all been reading the village voice, you know, 20 years ago or not, but that that's kind of how I see it. And, and, and I don't know, even know if that fits into a romantic tendency necessarily, but that that's really what is, what thrills me most about it. I would say to, I'll just steal Ross's thunder hairs up. I'll, I'll be a political pundit for a minute. One of the things I, I notice, and I do think this connects particularly to British romanticism, which is so much of the British romantic writing was done in the aftermath of the perceived failure of the French revolution. So a lot of it kind of comes under the heading of like what's left of liberal ideals or, or progressive ideals. And a lot of the, the, the most exciting writing like Wordsworth and Coleridge did was between when they were leftists and then they became conservatives. And I do feel like even though there's a lot of political 
heterogeneity, however you say that, on Substack, and you have everybody from Zlavoj Zizek to, to Curtis Yarvin and all points between, it does seem like there's a, a political trying to refurbish liberalism yeah, or a kind of rediscovery of a certain kind of moderation, a moderation within liberalism that I see as being kind of the center of gravity there that maybe isn't true on, I mean, Twitter went from the center of gravity being that 2010s progressivism, and now it's quite reactionary. And Substack is kind of in the middle of, of Twitter's two phases, you might say. I said we'd, we'd, wrote round, we'd end this early, and of course we went late because I'm endlessly interested in these things. But let's make some predictions. You know, make, make a prediction about the next five or ten years some, in some respect relative to this space. What's something you see coming but hasn't quite happened yet? What rough beast is waiting to be born? Isn't that the, isn't that the phrase? That's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You haven't done your Yates lecture. I mean, no, the second but... coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah oh, gosh, yeah. predictions. I never, I don't love predictions. What, what is coming down the pike? I think there's going to be a broader alienation around technology and the internet. I, I still don't know what form that's going to take, though. So it's a lousy prediction. I don't think there's going to be mass Luddite societies or anything like that, but. I, I, I do I do sense at least among a certain type of young person you're you're in this addiction phase and and I, and I think right now it's socially acceptable to be on your phone and to peek down at your phone a lot and I can see that changing in the next decade even just as a matter of social decorum where you're it's going to look quite odd when you look at old pictures you'll know oh that's the 2010s that's the early 2020s everyone is checking their 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 cell phone so that that is a it's a prediction i will hazard i don't know if it's going to be true i don't know when it's coming but i i, I do think that that is going to evolve i think yeah i think that that could well be true i will agree with something ross said earlier which i don't think print will die entirely i think there will be a role for the book and the and the journal at least if not for the daily paper I think that with the exhaustion of IP we were talking about earlier in pop culture and with maybe the oversaturation of the, the personal narrative and the auto-fictional and high culture, I think we might see some more imagination and originality. I'm trying to end on an optimistic note, some more <laughs> imagination and originality in, in the American cinema and in the American novel, and that's what I hope I, for. I'll second that, actually. That, that's, a, that's a good one because... When John said, especially in cinema, I think you are seeing the exhaustion of of the IP, the 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 slow death of the superhero yeah. genre. I think the success of Oppenheimer, even even anyone but you, it's just like a regular rom com. To just, I, I I do think there will be at least on the pop culture side, embrace of more imagination and less IP trawling. So I would agree with John on that as well. I, I'll end on on this is a sort of a semi prediction, but it's maybe it's, it's more of an observation, which is I think it's important to differentiate between the political forecast and the cultural forecast. And too often, I think so. I agree with you guys. I think I think the cultural forecast is looking up in a lot of respects. And I'm sort of excited by Substack and I'm sort of optimistic about you, the recognition that you guys are identifying that that we're, that sort of we've done too much of the same thing in a routine formulaic way in other realms and, and there'll be a return to some originality. I don't think that predicts at all that necessarily politics are going to be a happy space. But too often, I think pundits, critics, cultural observers sort of identify the, those, the two of those spaces overly. So we can talk about the, the utter collapse of the industry of journalism, and that's a tragic, sad story. I, th I think that has little to say about whether good novels are going to be produced or whether good nonfiction is going to be written. I mean, it will intersect with that, but it will not be identical to that. So there might be all sorts of unpleasant cultural, sort of mass cultural or political trends that continue, even as the sort of rare spirits who produce the really good stuff find more space and courage and inspiration to do their thing. I don't know if that's optimistic or pessimistic, but, you know, here we are. We're those rare spirits.
All right. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for doing this. I'm going to try and turn it around pretty quickly. Thanks for doing my inaugural State of the Discourse episode. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. This was an episode of Eminent Americans, the podcast. If you liked the podcast, subscribe to it and subscribe to the newsletter of the same name, Eminent Americans, the newsletter. Recommend it to your friends. Rate it on the platform on which you listen to it. Beam good vibes about it out into the universe. Thank you to my producer, Nick Worthen, and thank you to you, my listeners. This is a labor of love for me, and I do genuinely appreciate your attention, particularly if you've gotten all the way here to the end of all things. Feel free to email me with questions, thoughts, observations, even diatribes at djops at gmail.com. That's D as in Daniel, J as in James, ops as in ops or Oppenheimer at gmail.com. Have a great day. All right. Be in touch. See you guys.